the way that I'd make it a little bit more manageable and less daunting is to think about it on a day-to-day basis. And that's why it's reframe the day and not reframe your life or reframe the year, which is that I look for little things I can do today, little sustainable things that I can try to do a little bit better tomorrow, a little bit the day after that, and a little bit the day after that, and so forth. And hopefully over time, build some meaningful change into how I live my life. Welcome back, or welcome to another episode of Feeding Curiosity. I'm your host, Eric Wenzel, as always. Feeding Curiosity is a podcast that explores the precarity of human experience, and we challenge ourselves and others to think, question, and synthesize wherever our curiosity takes us. It is through conversations like what you're about to hear that we provide blueprints for others to learn and lead a more fulfilling life. And without further ado, let's introduce today's guest. My guest today is Adam Lowenstein. Adam is the author of Reframe the Day, Embracing the Craft of Life, One Day at a Time, which outlines 10 practices for creating a more fulfilling life by building more fulfilling days. Adam previously spent eight years working in the American government and politics, most recently as a speechwriter and a strategic communications advisor in the United States Senate. Today, Adam lives in London with his partner, Aaron, and writes frequently about politics, work, and life. You can visit his website and see his latest work and subscribe to his newsletter at adaml.blog. I really enjoyed today's conversation. Me and Adam basically hit record and it was just off to the races and resonating on so many levels with our own lived experiences and how we see the world and what we think about the world as it reacts and evolves through this pandemic. Overall, we think about how self-help and, and other areas get this bad rap, either from materialistic gains or just like the obsession of just becoming better. And, and I think for me, it's understanding that the idea to focus or optimize your life isn't just to pursue being better at something. It's to pursue being a better human for not only yourself, so you can be more empathetic and compassionate, but so you can connect and help others around you. How do you leverage the skills you gain through different practices to show up for them when they need it the most? And with that, everyone, please enjoy this conversation with Adam Lowenstein. On today's episode, we are joined by Adam Lowenstein. So Adam, thanks again for joining me and not only, but sharing your book. So you're the author of the Reframe the Day. And this is your first book, I'm assuming, right? That's right. And hopefully not the last. (laughs) Yeah. So I think the best place to start here is just to outline, not just the writing portion of this, but like, how did you get into this book? What was the reason to write a book like this? Yeah, no, I think that's a great place to start. And thanks for having me on, Eric. I'm a big fan of the podcast and excited to get into this conversation. So I think the best place to start is just a little bit about who I am and what gives me the, you know, the platform to write this book and where I'm coming from. And the the broad overview is that I spent about eight years working in American politics. That was my first job right out of college was working on Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C., and spent close to a decade, ultimately, on the Hill, a little bit back home, working in politics in my home state of Colorado, and then another few years in Washington, D.C., most recently working as a speechwriter in the U.S. Senate. And eventually, at the end of um, 2017, I moved with my partner to the U.K. Um, She was going to be studying in graduate school and 
I think I, I was feeling those early flickers of burnout coming regardless of presidential election outcomes and saw this as a great opportunity to move abroad and try something new. And I entered the corporate world where I am now still based in London and with a little bit more time to reflect on the time that I'd spent in politics, as well as just a little bit more time, period, not working in politics, not working a job that requires being on to some degree or another 24-7, a job where the news is not the job. The news is something separate from what I do day to day. I found myself with a little bit more time to think and reflect, and I started experiencing these moments of fulfillment and contentment and moments where I felt very much at peace. And I think like a lot of writers, I started writing things down to try to figure out where these moments were coming from. Mm -hmm. And what started as me brain dumping my thoughts into a note on my phone grew into a series of blog posts. And then I kept going and realizing that I had a lot more to say and I needed to keep writing to figuring out, to figure out what I think. And ultimately those brain dumps became the book that is reframe the day which was published at the end of April this year. And broadly, because I know we'll get into some of the specifics more later on, um, but broadly Reframe the Day is about, it's one idea and 10 practices. And the one idea is that anyone, no matter who you are, no matter what your circumstances are, what you do for a living, anyone can build a more fulfilling life by building more fulfilling days. And then that's the one idea. And the 10 practices are just the 10 practices. Uh, for doing so. Ideas like carving out time for stillness every day, building an awareness practice, and so forth. So that is the book. It is Reframe the Day, um, Embracing the Craft of Life One Day at a Time. And as I mentioned, it came out in April, and we'll get into it. Yeah, absolutely. And I, it's such a unique perspective to, to get into this with politics, not at least American politics being what it is. I assume most mm -hmm. politics are that anywhere you go. But it's a really interesting take to get there because I think the majority of people really have this kind of uh, reflective attitude as like a midlife crisis kind of thing. It's one of the things I've described on this podcast before where it's like all of a sudden you follow what society says you, this is what you're supposed to do without realizing that society's giving you this value. And then you wake up at 35 one day and you say, oh, my God, what did I do with, with all of that time after graduating right. college? And that's what this book is really about. And, and for me, as that young person who because you even mentioned it, is like millennials got the short end of the stick in all of this, or at least we get targeted as a group of people that are seeking handouts or struggling, basically, <laughs> to put it right. simply. And I, I think it's more of that we don't know what it is and it's partly due to the technology, but I think it's also rooted in just the insane speed up of our world. Our age group has seen or really grown up with this technology in our hands. You're a little bit older than me, but I still remember the original still dial phones before cell phones happened and <laughs> things like that. We have that weird middle ground where we got to see technology shift into this like instant gratification, Amazon like, world that we live in today, which just doesn't mesh with the effort it takes to create a fulfilling life realistically. And I, yeah. and I think that's where this disconnect comes from. Yeah. Was this always something for you? Like the, this, this reflective attitude or anything like that? Was that? Yeah. I think the, whether I've always been a reflective person, I think that would probably be giving me a little bit too much credit, but 
I think kind of two broad points to what you're saying, which I completely agree with. And I talk a bit in the book about why I think millennials are a case study in growing up in a world obsessed with striving and achievement and accomplishing things. And a lot of us are just realizing now that we've been in the workforce for a while and we've seen the world in a lot of ways disintegrate around us, whether it's graduating for some of us into the economy wrecked by what used to be the greatest financial crisis since the Great Depression until the one we're going through right now superseded it, or seeing politics and the quote-unquote end of history disintegrate around us as well. All of these ideas that we were raised and taught were the way things are, we're starting to, or for many of us, I think not starting to, but we're well on our way towards saying there's got to be more to life than just accomplishing the next thing, being obsessed with striving and future achievements. And so for me, it comes through in two ways. One is that for probably the first, certainly through my college years and then through a good chunk of my professional career up until now, I was very much obsessed with the idea that I could do it all. And what I needed to do to quote unquote do it all was find the right productivity hack or find the right life hack. And eventually by achieving a certain achievement or accomplishing a certain accomplishment, whether that's a career advancement or promotion or meeting the right person or moving to the right city, doing the right thing, eventually at some far off point in the future, I would be happy and content and fulfilled. And the only thing I needed to do to get there was to work as much as humanly possible. And therefore, the more time I could be working, the happier I would be. Therefore, I needed to be more productive so I could work more often and sleep less and find more time. So it's this very slippery slope of life and searching. (laughs) Yeah, very much. And searching for productivity as a solution to all of life's challenges. So I very much fell into that. I I would call it an illusion in a lot of ways, and it's a very comforting one. And then more broadly, the the way I talk about my career in politics in this book is that politics, while it's a weird work environment to be in, is also very reflective of a lot of work environments, no matter who you are, no matter where in the world you are, which is that it's very short-term oriented. You're always thinking about what's the next thing, the next little win I can get, constantly trying to deal with the next unexpected scandal or crisis or tragedy or tweet. So it's it's constantly thinking short-term. It's constant striving for the next office, the next committee post, the next promotion, the next little bit of way to inch a little bit closer to power. And it's constant uncertainty because you never know what's going to disrupt the plan that you had. So it's constant striving, constant uncertainty um, in a world obsessed with achievement and inundated by constant distractions. And while that was my experience in politics, I think it represents a lot of our lives right now, no matter whether we're in school, in, in an office job or doing anything else on as an essential worker right now on the front lines, it is constant nonstop and you feel like you can't get ahead. And to bring it back to what you were saying before, I think that's why so many of us right now are saying there's things are not working. There's gotta be more to it as an individual and as well as a society than what we have put together so far. Yeah. I, I think you're hitting so many right points here with what we're seeing in the world. And, and when, COVID really ramped up. Realistically, it was like a week where it was just like, first it was like not really a thing. And then all of a sudden it just hit. Right. Um, 
to me, if, now, yeah, don't leave your house. And it's still kind of like that, depending on where you are. Like the Southern states right now are seeing a resurgence. They put place this conversation in time. And we really don't, still don't know when it's going to be over in quotation marks. And for me, when I looked at how this was reacting, it felt like this idea of a pause for society. And I think what we're seeing, at least from a larger scale, this pause has made people really uncomfortable because we're so used to being on the go and having things to do and all of that kind of stuff. Like when I first started working from home through all of this, I started noticing things that I didn't notice at home before, like walking in front of a window and feeling the warmth of the sun because it was still cold here in Chicago. And I was like, this is weird. I'm like noticing these little (laughs) habits or these little things that you would don't, you just take for granted most of the time. And I mean, I've been doing this kind of stuff for a while now. So it was, oh, cool. This is a fun thing to actually notice. But I don't think many people have exercised this muscle as much or skill really to be present in the environments that they're in, to be able to not feel as anxious about it because of that loss Mm -hmm. of control of their situation. And I don't know if you can elaborate on anything like that to help people be okay without having minute control of their situation. Yeah, I think there's a lot there. And on the control point, I think that one of the reasons I wrote this book and one of the reasons I think try to think about, because it's not a, I have not perfected anything, it's a constant practice. That's why I call them practices. But one of the things I try to think about is focusing on on a daily basis, because the day is a very manageable time frame for most of us. As you mentioned, a lot can change in a very short number of days. So I try to think about two things. One is how I see each day, how I perceive the world around me, and then how I spend my time each day. Those are the two things. I can't control all of how I see the world, and I can't control all of how I spend my time. But I probably have a little bit more control over those two levers than most other aspects of my life, very much including the things that most stress me out and agitate me, whether it's world events or something going on with my employer or any number of things, some loud noise that's keeping me awake at night. All of these things are outside of our control, but what we do have a little bit of leverage over is how we see our days and how we spend them. So that's what the 10 practices in this book are about and what they focus on. But even so, I think the timing of when I wrote this book is revealing in particularly in terms of how difficult it is to switch from a future oriented achievement obsessed mindset, which we've all been raised in certainly in the Western world for the most part. And to switch from that to something that's a little bit more focused on, like you said, feeling the warmth of the sun on your face instead of thinking, Oh wait, I'm five minutes late. I need to get in the car. I need to get on the subway or something the way we thought and mindlessly up until February, March, whenever lockdown started. So even though I wrote this book, that's all about focusing on the controlling the little parts of your day that you can. And even though I finished the manuscript in January and it ultimately came out at the end of April. So it, a lot happened in the world in that, that time frame. I still throughout the book release promotion process, as well as the rest of my life that has happened in that time, I'm struggling enormously with every single one of the practices that I talk about in the book. I talk about thinking about death and mortality as a way to remind us that our time here is very much fleeting and to focus on the things and the people who matter most to us. And what more vivid 
reminder of all of our mortality and the fragility of life than a global pandemic. And even so, I would find myself and still find myself from the moment I wake up to the moment I go to sleep thinking, how can I get more Instagram likes or follows when I'm promoting this book and really stressing over why isn't this reviewer I reached out to about reframe the day getting back to me? What if they hate the book? What if everybody hates the book? That's the end of the world. And all of these little things that in the grand scheme of things don't matter. And I wrote a book specifically to remind myself as much as anyone else that these things don't matter. Focus on my partner right in front of me who really does matter to me. She is far more important than what Instagram is saying. So even though I wrote this and had these 10 practices, I still am trying and trying to cut myself some slack when I come up short to live the practices that I talk about. And I think that just goes to show how even though this pause is happening, and I think it's a huge, I would never wish a global pandemic on any society, but it is an opportunity for people to reimagine what their priorities are and rethink how they want to spend their time as best they can if they're in such a fortunate and privileged place to be able to use this for that purpose. And even in spite of all of that and recognizing objectively that this opportunity is right in front of me and having written this book, I'm still struggling with it day in and day out. And I think that just goes to show how tough this stuff is, how many distractions we have in front of us, as well as how deeply entrenched some of these ways of thinking and being and living and working are. Yeah, it's really, I think, important because it's one of those things that I always think about is, especially as like an engineer, I think about frameworks and, and creating habits because motivation only gets you so far. Like motivation gets you on the horse, but habits and routines don't keep you on the horse, <laughs> especially when the right. horse doesn't want to, you to, to be there. And and so that's where like why I think what you're saying is so important, because it's in times like these when things are going crazy or things go sideways that you try to do the things that you outline in this book. It's about practicing these things so that when you aren't at your best, you can still show up because you've done the work. And I'm really, I don't really believe in hacks because hack is a shortcut in a lot of ways. And one of the things that I remember reading in your book was like the phases you went through. And I was laughing because I was like, oh yeah, <laughs> I've been there. <laughs> and it's one of those things that when you, when you get really excited about a certain area, it's, it's really hard to backpedal and be like, am I taking this too far for what is actually the most pragmatic for me? Yeah. And it's, we can outline a lot of these things and take it to the absolute logical extreme of here's how to do it perfect. But doing it perfect is not, that's almost just as bad as being like this obsessed performance driven, striving to be your best and then burning out. If you take any of these things to the extreme, it's, or not at all, it's the same thing. It's, it's about finding the sweet spot for yourself that allows you to be most present. And I think when you mentioned you have a partner and being able to be with her, without being distracted, I think is really important because it's don't lose sight of the goal in all of this, which is to right. lead a fulfilling life. And obviously that's part of this whole theory of feeding curiosity for me. It's part of what I think is important. And, it, and what you were saying before I lose the thought was it reminds me of Viktor Frankl's quote, that putting space between the stimulus and response. Yeah. And I, and I think just having those kind of cues or at least helping yourself think through those things is so important for all of us, especially in this time. I wonder where, like what has been like a cornerstone for your routine? 
Yeah. So I think, so there are a couple things there. And I think one of the points that you make that really resonates with me is this switch from seeing things like productivity or anything that we often want to get a shortcut to, um, seeing that instead of being the end goal as actually just a means to an end. And one of the things for me that has made any life altering habit that I'm trying to form more sustainable is seeing that as a tool to be a better person and a more supportive and engaged and self-aware human being, as opposed to having a meditation practice, for example, as the goal in and of itself. Because like you said, then it's easy to try to aspire to, you don't think about it one day, the next day you say, I'm going to be the world's greatest meditator. And you're undoubtedly going to come up short on that. And then you get disappointed and frustrated and yeah, because failure was the only possible outcome there. It's people often say with dieting, the best diet that, or the best exercise regimen for you is the one that you're actually going to stick with and do over months and years for the rest of your life, hopefully. And I think the same thing is true with a lot of these practices, whether it's meditation or finding more time to think or consuming more meaningful content or trying to make more time for the things and the people who matter most to us. I think that all of these things, if you try to change your life overnight, then there's no way it's going to stick because that's just not the world that we live in. We have too many commitments to ourselves, to other people. But if we can try to nudge today in a slightly more fulfilling direction by thinking about these practices, by focusing on those two things I mentioned, how we see each day and how we spend each day, do a little bit today, a little bit tomorrow. Over time, you can make some pretty dramatic changes in a way that's actually sustainable. Having now said that, which something you mentioned a bit earlier made me think of, I've forgotten what your question was. Yeah, it was, uh, what has worked best for your routine? Like maybe a morning routine or something that like, if you become distracted in the middle of your day or something mm-hmm. and you're trying to get back on task, do you have anything that helps you reset basically? Yeah, and I think one of the things now that I've, cast some shade on a lot of the productivity blogs and Mm -hmm. books that I think of as a guilty pleasure in some ways now, although I've gotten a lot out of them. One of the things that seems to be consistent throughout many of them is taking advantage of time in the morning to do the most important things for you. And for me, that is, besides spending time with people I care about, for me, the morning is when my head is the clearest. So I want to make sure I do some writing at that point, even if it's just to get some thoughts out of my head, I'm trying to meditate every morning and I'm trying to read something that's fairly substantive. But I think the thing that, so those, if I can do those three things, which together take, would love to have a couple hours to do it, but can do it in an hour or something if I need to. And if I can do that in the morning, then no matter what happens in the rest of the day, I know that I have spent some time on a fulfillment generating series of activities. And so I'm in a pretty good shape. I think the thing that for me has made that more sustainable is trying to forgive myself and cut myself some slack when I come up short or when circumstances make it impossible for me to do those things in the morning. Maybe I have an early meeting or going to the airport and that was a thing that people did or any number of reasons that this morning routine is not feasible or maybe I just need to sleep in because that has been one of my goals for years is to actually sleep more because that's probably the best life hack that any of us can come up with is just resting more. (laughs) So for any number of reasons, I might not do these things in the morning. And what for me is a constant struggle and a constant work in progress is to say, you know what, 
I'm not going to do these things in the morning and that's okay. The world is going to keep spinning. I can just do them again tomorrow or later in the day. And the more I can take that approach to all of these practices in the book and anything that I'm working on in my life, which is that do the best you can cut yourself some slack, cut the people around you some slack too, for maybe not being their best selves every moment, every day and keep on moving. The more I can maintain that perspective, the better I feel. I think the better I treat people around me, the better I show up for the world. And I think a lot of that comes from what you mentioned about that Viktor Frankl idea of space between what happens to you and what you're, how you respond to it. The more you can carve out that space in some ways, the better you can show up as a human being in the world. And so it's, it's a weird thing that by giving yourself some space between you and the world, you can actually get closer to the world and get closer to the people around you. It's the power of a little bit of self-awareness and a little bit of space. So those are some things that over time have stuck with me trying to do those things in the morning and then, but more broadly trying to think about them as aspirations and practices. The key word again, being practice, not solutions, not prescriptions. Yeah. I really agree with that. And and one of the words that you triggered for me there was the, the idea of sustainability. And then also added in with giving yourself slack. I, I don't know the word is escaping me that would be called being okay with messing up one day. Because mm-hmm. I think the majority of us, when we try to do anything new, we, our own judge, jury, and executioner all in one. As soon as we miss a day on our diet or we forget to go to the gym or just don't feel like it for that matter, mm-hmm. we immediately throw in the towel and say, oh my God, I'll never be able to do that. I'll never hit whatever weight I want to be or lose however much weight I want to lose or whatever it is. And... I think it's almost a symptom of people like we've been labeling here where it's like that type A workaholic. If you're not doing 110%, then it's not worth doing at all. And I think that's wrong because you only have so much to give in general. And unless you're going to do something as a world-class something or other, there's only, you can only pick one thing to be world-class at really, or at least in a given time frame. And and so it's really easy to be distracted and be like, okay, I'm going to start, you know, working out and then I'm going to be the best, whatever you want to be within working out. But then you have to reel that back in and be like, is that really what I want to be? Or is that, or is this just a goal to get into something else? Like you were saying, it's a practice to perform better in other aspects of your life. And one of the examples I can give from my own life is when I really got into eating healthy and just understanding the biophysiology about working out and then getting sucked into the supplement world with his own self-help nightmare. Um, yeah, I've had my own journey done <laughs> to the world of dietary supplements too. Yeah, exactly. It's an expensive I, one on top of everything else. That's where I was going. I wound yeah. up telling everything I was buying at one point when I first got into like with my first year, I was spending like $220 a month or something crazy and i was like you really need to take a check and be like are these really helping do you really need to buy a month's supply of like fish oil multivitamins and bcas with (laughs) with everything else like it's like all of these shiny things get tacked on things that feel like you need to add them if you're going to really commit when it's really just fancy marketing because because for me it's if the if quality of life is really what you're after Buying a supplement isn't there for the average person. A supplement is there for the top five to three percent of athletes that need to squeeze out that level of performance slash recovery 
that's going to allow them to win a stage medal of some sort. So the average person maybe take a multivitamin and a fish oil or something and call it a day. <laughs> like, right. Just to keep it super simple and to save your money. I'm not like, I really, that might sound really blunt, but I really believe that because it's like how much of it is actually providing benefit and mostly distraction is like one of the magics of all this stuff is trying to figure out and prioritize for yourself because it's so yeah. easy to get distracted by companies that are following the fads or looking to make money on you realistically because they know that people are going to get wrapped into it like that. Yeah. And it's such a seductive idea, mm -hmm. not just the take a pill and all will be well, but mm -hmm. it's a seductive notion that we can, like you referenced earlier, the hack is a shortcut, but it's such an appealing notion to be able to hack your way to better health and in mm -hmm. turn, happiness and fulfillment and contentment, which is ultimately what we hope we're going to find at the end of these things. And I realized putting aside my own supplement journey, uh, which I had a very similar experience to you and that fish oil does not travel well, weird <laughs> stuff happens with those particular gelatinous supplements, but who knows what's <laughs> actually in them. But so putting that aside, one of the things I write about in the book is this journey that I went on for no particular reason in, I guess I was 25, 26. So this was 2013, 2014. I decided I was working in DC. I'd been there for about four years and decided all of a sudden that the only way I would be happy in life is if I immediately moved home to Colorado moved into a specific state house district and then ran for the state house in the 2016 election cycle. And I'd never worked in state politics at that time. I hadn't lived in Colorado for four years. I'd only been in the workforce for four years. I didn't really know myself at all, but all of a sudden I decided this is the path that will make me happy and successful and people will respect me and look up to me. And, and so I need to do this at whatever the cost. And there was a huge cost to me and to people I cared about um, and still care about when I decided, you know what, I'm just going to drop everything and do this. And I think it's the same. It was almost the same kind of switch with supplements where it's like yesterday, you didn't even know you needed that a B12 vitamin existed. And then today, you know that without it, you will undoubtedly never be healthy for the rest of your life. The only thing that changed was that you knew that supplement existed. In my case, the only thing that changed was that my mind decided to fixate on this one solitary, wildly unrealistic career path. But nevertheless, I got sucked into it and moved home to Colorado and left a lot of people and a good career and a very happy life in D.C. to do that. And it wasn't until I got to Colorado and realized that this thing that I'd been working towards was completely artificial I'd completely made up this journey in my mind as the path to success. And I realized that I could keep chasing these things for the rest of my life and keep saying that I'm tired and stressed and exhausted and unhappy right now. But if I do this next thing, then I'll be happy. So what I need to do is be busier and be more productive and keep working towards that thing. And then I'll rest and relax. And of course that finish line never comes. We could keep doing that our entire lives. And I think a lot of people do. And it's nobody's fault for doing that because it's such a culturally, it's such an easy thing to do. And as an individual, it's such a seductive idea that once I achieve X, then I will be happy for the rest of my life. And life doesn't work like that, but it's so hard not to think that. I still think it, even though I went through this whole thing and I wrote a book about it, I still think that maybe if X number of people buy my book and I can, you know, quit my day job and be an author full time and 
go give speeches or do whatever author influencers do, then I will be happy. And even though I know objectively that's not true, I've worked with enough corporate leaders and enough politicians, people who have by every measure, conventional measure, are successful. Mm -hmm. And I've seen enough of them and worked with enough of them up close to know that they have the same stresses, the same anxieties and insecurities as anyone else, um, if not more because they're living in the public eye and they're always exhausted. And so even though I know all these things, it's still a seductive notion. Mm -hmm. And I think the best that we can do is just try to be aware of it. Come back to that space that you mentioned earlier. The more we have that space and self-awareness, the more we can catch ourselves thinking, I'm going to think this, these thoughts are going to come through my head. And instead of following them, I'm just going to let them go and recognize them as whatever they may be, insecurities, anxieties, just daydreams, whatever says I need to take the supplement or I need to move home to Colorado to run for office, whatever it may be, I can just think it and let it go and realize that I'm just going to sit with this feeling instead of try to follow it to whatever its illogical conclusion might be. I think that's, it's one of those things to bring up, like any figure that has either, like you're saying, public office or just some sort of notoriety to them. Mm-hmm. When you can humanize that person, it's part of the reason why I love podcasts, honestly, because you get to hear the things about that person that a five minute news clip doesn't actually let them say because they only got so much time. Right. But but it, realistically, it's like when you realize that anyone who's at a higher status than you or whatever is. They're dealing with basically the same issues that you are. The only thing that's different is maybe their net worth is bigger than yours. But what is, whatever that really means, grand scheme, I don't know. Right. <laughs> and so it's it's kind of like the, the emperor's got no clothes in some ways because it's just we're all just human. And no matter how much someone sounds like they have life figured out, they really don't. Even like you, you've omitted it here is that even though you've wrote this book and have 10 practices in it, like you said, it's practices. It's never, it's not like I've, you're a guru on top of the mountain. I've like, I've mastered <laughs> these things. And, and a lot of it is referencing other people that written books 50 years ago or, or even more at times. And it's, to me, it's like this never ending. It reminds you of Bruce Lee in many ways where you can't really prescribe a routine on anyone other than yourself because you're the only one that's experiencing your life directly. Mm -hmm. And, but Bruce Lee's quote is take what works and throw away the rest and then add what's your own. And I think that's where you have to make your own operator's manual for yourself and no one else can make that except for you. But the, but most of us go through life without ever actually thinking about the things that actually work for us. We just wake up every morning and then I got to go to work and then you go to work and then you get home and then you sit in front of a, the TV or something and then you just repeat until you have to deal with problems. And I think the other part of this was that's what it was. It was the like this meant there's like a mental health thing that we're circling right now, which is like this workaholism that's embedded in our culture. And I've talked about this before in different ways, but our culture puts a negative on other types of mental health issues like depression or anxiety, but we reward those with workaholism, which is just as bad of a mental health problem as anything else. It just so happens that because if you can work more than other people, then you're going to get rewarded for it. It's just what it is. And I think it's worth noting that because being a workaholic, even though people are like, oh, wow, look at that person works all the time and doesn't sleep or whatever. It's, there's consequences to making those decisions. 
and right. being really aware of if you have that issue is really important because it's not going to serve you forever. <laughs> and it's just so, I don't even know how to go from there because it's just so, it's something that doesn't get talked about a lot. Yeah, I think that's so true. And everything else we've talked about, it's one of the things that I recognize more objectively now than I used to, but I still struggle with it. Mm-hmm. And for a long time, and still to some extent now, I would judge my own self-worth by how productive I was. And because I don't think a lot of us, especially people working in knowledge jobs, office jobs, we don't have a good way to measure productivity in the type of work that we do. We measure it instead by the proxy measure of busyness. And we think that the busier we are, the earlier we wake up, the later we work, the more times we clear out our email inbox, the more responsive we are on a Slack channel. All of these absurd metrics that, first of all, didn't exist 20, 30 years ago, but even if they had, they wouldn't have been any more meaningful than they are now. All of these busyness measures make us feel like we are important and that we are doing something that's meaningful and worthwhile and that we are doing a good job in our work. And therefore, because in our society, who, what work you do is often seen as your identity. So we all internalize that and think that if we're doing well in our career trajectory, then we are a worthwhile and valuable human being. And if we aren't, then we're not. All of these things we internalize to the point where, just like you said, we judge on a day-to-day basis how, how we feel is dependent on how busy we were, whether our calendar was full of meetings, regardless of whether those meetings actually were of value or accomplished anything. If the calendar is full, we look like we're busy. We tell ourselves we're busy and important and the cycle repeats. And before we know it, like you said, we've neglected our families. We've neglected the things that we used to love doing. We've neglected investing in a craft or a side hustle. We've neglected our own physical well-being. We've neglected all of the social causes and commitments that require our own involvement and the time and effort and awareness that we can give to them. We've neglected all of that and focused just on how can I check more stuff off the to-do list? How can I fill up the calendar so it's more packed and I'm running around frantically and all of this busyness. And there are a number of writers who I quote in the book who've talked about this at length and really eloquent ways. What are we hiding? What are we covering up with all of this busyness? And to come back to what we were talking about a little bit earlier with this pause, this reset that the lockdown has created for many of us, this, the pause in a lot of ways is forcing us to confront what we were burying with all the busyness and all the constant exhaustion and to doing and mm-hmm. to froing that we had been doing. And I think like you mentioned earlier, that's a scary thing for a lot of us to confront this. It's a lot harder to build an identity and a sense of self on something foundational, like who we actually are, what our values are, what we love doing. It's a lot easier to build a shell of an identity on things that are outside of our control, but that feel good, whether it's a career accomplishment or in my case, running for the state house, running for political office, these things, it's easy to attach your identity to one of these uh, trains and then let it go and, you know, hope it ends up in a good place. It's much harder to build that identity on something solid where we don't judge who we are as a person. We don't judge our worth by how busy we were that day that's a harder thing, especially because like you said, so much of society, we're starting to recognize mental health crises in a lot of different parts of our lives. And that's a huge step forward and, and more urgent than ever in a lot of ways. But 
there is not as much talk about busyness and our obsessions with working all the time and how so much, like so many people struggle and are incapable of not being productive, not working. This idea of downtime is reason to feel guilty. And all that does is burn us out and leave us incapable of being there for anybody around us, let alone for ourselves. You're hitting on so many uh, parallel ideas that I've had for myself over the last few years. And it's this idea of building an identity that's not tied to who you are is not what you do. Well, mm-hmm. what is what it boils down to, and and right. I've always been this kind of person that it was actually really hard for me to even pick a degree because I'm so naturally curious about so many different things, and that the idea for me to just pick one thing and say that's all you're ever going to get to do in your life was like foreign to me. I was like, that sounds stupid. That sounds really boring after <laughs> a while, and so as I wanted realistically, what it came down to is like, okay, pick something that's going to open as keep as many doors open as possible, rather than just if you pick something so esoteric that it's okay, that's all you're ever going to be able to be with that degree then. So that's not a really good choice then if that's what you, <laughs> the kind of person that you are. But I think more people really need to go about that because it's like when people go through school, they pick whatever it might be and then they wind up getting into that and realizing, oh, wow, this is not what I thought it was. Because we're all like, no matter what degree that we wind up picking, it's given to us in such a way that it makes it feel like it's the... Like we're going to change the world, which is not bad mm-hmm. in any way. But then when you get to your job and you get stuck in some sort of middle, low level, middle job in the beginning and you're like, this is not what I thought it was going to be like. I'm not on the front lines doing important work. I'm here fielding emails or whatever it might be. And it's really hard to be able to extricate yourself when it's like all you've ever done is go to school or kind of say you're going to do these things. And then all of a sudden you get in the real world and it's like, wow, there's a lot more going on. But then even if, you know, you spend 40 hours, roughly 40 hours of, of your time at work, you still have another eight hours of your day that you can do other things with. And right. for me, one of the things I always would say is I don't want to live to work. I wanted to work so I can go live. Meaning that even if I like, I still enjoyed what I was doing and it was part of what I went to school for, which is great, but I used like the money and, and the time and the skills that I learned from that to funnel into other things to provide extra fulfillment in my life so that it wasn't always like I'm an engineer and that's all I'd ever be. It was more like, oh, I'm trained as an engineer and I can think like an engineer, but that's not all that I am. There's so much more mm-hmm. beyond that. We're a kaleidoscope of different activities and different interests that make up who we are. And I just, sometimes we just don't think, I just don't think we think about it that way because it's unless you're making money doing that thing or something like that, you like, Oh, like playing the guitar or something. And then you, but that gets like thrown in the closet because you don't think about it, even though you really enjoy doing that because it's not making you money. The guitar in your spare time and that's your passion, but you're a consultant. Yeah, exactly. 40 hours a week. Then if someone asks you, Oh, who are you? You're probably going to say, Oh, I'm a consultant. You're not going to say I'm a guitarist. Right. When guitarist has probably in a lot of ways more claim to that title than consultant does, because that's just a way that you make money. Mm -hmm. But society says that you are, like you said, you are the work that you do. So how would you go about in helping someone who kind of resonates with what we're talking about, but isn't sure like how to start like unpeeling that who you are is what you do. Is there anything 
that you would recommend how people would get through those first rough patches where it's because there's a lot of resistance to this mm-hmm. because when in first there's so many credentials and there's so many different things with titling and all of those kind of arbitrary things that feel like they matter a lot but when in reality they are just there they're just titles yeah. <laughs> they're not really real it's not like someone gives you a trophy or something other than your diploma but once you get that it doesn't really matter after right. a while <laughs> we can spend years chasing these Mm-hmm. arbitrary thing, job titles or access to a particular senior level meeting at our company, which when someone who doesn't work there asks us what we do, we couldn't even begin to explain why it matters yet. We spend <laughs> our lives chasing that stuff and no one should beat themselves up for doing that. We all do it. Yeah. And I think actually that's probably the first place to start with thinking about any of this stuff is not blaming yourself for wanting feeling it. a certain way for wanting it. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. And like I said, and say throughout the book, I wrote a new forward to the book that was published right around the time the book came out. And that whole forward is basically me saying what we talked about earlier. I'm still struggling with all these practices as much as I was before I wrote the book. I have a little bit more clarity about coming back to them now that I've gotten these thoughts out of my head and onto the page. But other than that, I'm still learning as much as anybody else. And so the first thing I would say in any of these, for anyone who's undertaking a journey like this to try to build a more fulfilling life is first of all, cut yourself some slack, give yourself the benefit of the doubt and recognize that there's no point where you switch from being not fulfilled to fulfilled. And then you're good to go from there on out. This is something you'll do for the rest of your life. And that's why I talk about it like practices and not as a solution. And it's not the the quick fix silver bullet life hack that a lot of blogs and a lot of clickbait headlines tell us exists. If only we read the right book or listen to the right podcast or do the right life hack or take the right supplement. Um, (laughs) This is something we're going to do for the rest of our lives. And so that, that is the first thing I would say is cut yourself some slack and recognize that this is a lifelong journey. Mm -hmm. And the way that I make that for me, the way that I make it a little bit more manageable and less daunting is to think about it on a day-to-day basis And that's why it's reframe the day and not reframe your life or reframe the year, which is that I look for little things I can do today, little sustainable things that I can try to do a little bit better tomorrow, a little bit the day after that, and a little bit the day after that, and so forth. And hopefully over time, build some meaningful change into how I live my life. So that's the second thing I would say is think about it in terms of a manageable, not just amount of time that you're going to spend on something that you want to start doing, a habit you want to start building, but a manageable time frame in terms of how you think and expect change. And one of the things that I'm exploring now, and if I could go back and write this book again, which thankfully <laughs> I can't because I could do that for the rest of my life, yep. <laughs> is this difference between expectation and reality and how the expectations we set for ourselves are often so absurdly unrealistic that we are guaranteed to fail mm-hmm. and therefore guaranteed to be disappointed. And like you said, when we were talking about diet stuff earlier, you're guaranteed to do right, go back to what you were doing before because of these wildly unrealistic expectations. And we do this in our careers. We do this in our romantic lives. We do this in any way we're trying to change ourselves, anything we're trying to achieve. It's so natural to set these unrealistic expectations. And that's in part why I think this idea of changing the world that a lot of millennials grew up with and Gen Z, I think as well, we're taught that what you're going to do is you're going to go to school and then you're going to graduate and then you're going to change the world. And that's what everybody's going to do. And 
I think as for why we've been told that finance and consulting are the ways to change the world as opposed to government or nonprofit work or any number of social work, mental health professional, any number of careers, there's a lot of ways to change the world. But the way that we've been told to do it is a wildly unrealistic expectation. The world needs a lot of changing, but we're not going to do that changing single-handedly, A, and B, it's not going to happen overnight and it's not going to happen by us working 100 hours a week. So <laughs> yeah. a bit of a tangent there. So I would expectations are something I would like to work into round two of this book. And that's something I would suggest for people starting this journey is to really limit your expectations. And that's not giving up. That's not giving in. That's not failing. What yeah. that's doing is just being realistic about the journey that's yeah. ahead of you. I really agree with that. It's, I think it's common to, when you get that motivation to try anything, right? Say it's, you want to be an artist just to pick an easy example right now. And you're like, you really, I don't know, Van Gogh, it's just the first artist that popped in my head and you really like his style and you're going to like learn how to paint like him. That first time you pick up the brush is never going to look exactly like you expected to, because whenever he painted that thing, his day one was however old he was when he decided to paint that, which was probably at least 30 or 40. And so we have this false expectation that when we attempt anything, we're going to be just as good as someone, even though we have no idea with that person next to us or whoever we're basing our expectation off of their day one was years ago compared to our day one now. And the first step is just to throw that out quite literally. <laughs> like, yeah. like you can never put an expectation on your skill level compared to another person because they started a long time ago. It was one of the things that actually really helped me to get into working out because that ego piece gets such in the way. Like our egos are, are monsters. And part of the reason I didn't work out much before was I had this incredibly fixed mindset that kept me from, I'd look at the giant guy next to me who's a bodybuilder probably and be like, oh my God, I'm never going to look like that guy. Obviously not because you haven't been doing it for nearly as long as him with, <laughs> right. with all the supplements on top of that. <laughs> right, there you go. <laughs> but um, I think it's one of those things that I think we, being able to, transition from expectation to vision is I think really important. And I don't know if yeah. you write anything about vision in, in this book. I didn't get to see the, some of the later chapters, but I think having a vision is really what allows for expectations to remain healthy mm -hmm. because it, the vision for me, the way I like to think about it is if you take a, a goal, right? So it's for me, my goal is everything I do goes into podcasting. Like no matter what I read or what I'm thinking about or whatever, like interviewing, asking better questions, I somehow apply it to the world of podcasting and interviewing. But th when I think about vision for this podcast, it's okay, maybe this interview is not going to be perfect. It'll never be perfect. There's going to be ways I can grow. So it's like throwing that dart as far in the future as I possibly can and saying, how could, how big could it be or how, good can I get at anything so that I can be able to always be striving for something? It's like that day mentality, but in anything you do and understanding mm -hmm. that the longer you stick with something, the better you're going to get at it, no matter what, as long as you try to get better at it. Like at some point, some things you're probably just gonna be like, all right, cool. I can just put this in steady state and pedal my wheels to water because it's just not practical for you to keep pushing your edge. Maybe you're just yeah. riding your bike for fun or something like that because right. it keeps you healthy. And that's okay. And, and that's okay. It's totally fine to do yeah. that. But, and as long as where you stand on that thing, totally fine. 
and I, yeah, and I think that's part of the nuance of these kind of healthy habits. I think some of it gets into a vicious cycle where it's you always have to be pushing again. It's like that that mm-hmm. thing that kind of sneaks in and says, should you always be chasing that edge and everything? And I don't think you have to. I really don't. Yeah, and it's really not sustainable mm-hmm. for ninety nine point nine percent of us for ninety nine point nine percent of what we want to do if we are thinking about it that way. Yeah. And like you said, what's more daunting than thinking that the only way for me to build a effective, successful fitness habit is to become a bodybuilder tomorrow. That's first of all, it's not going to happen. And what better way to say, okay, then I'm not going to do anything at all Mm -hmm. because that's not realistic and it's not feasible. And I think the hardest thing for me sometimes when it comes to writing, for example, something that I think for me is like podcasting is for you. Every time I'm reading, having a conversation, I'm thinking about how can I distill this into my writing? How does this impact how I see the world and how can I communicate that by writing? Mm -hmm. And even though I know that writing is an activity that always fulfills me and that is so important for who I am and for my mental health, even if nobody ever sees what I write, the hardest thing for me is just to sit down and start writing. And one of the authors who I cite in the book is Stephen Pressfield, who's written a ton of stuff um, on all sorts of topics, fiction and non, but he has this concept of the resistance, which I'm guessing you're familiar with. I love that book. It's so good. (laughs) There's so much to it. I think it's from Do the Work. I think I'm not sure. It might be The War of Art. The War of Art. That's right. And he, so in The War of Art, he talks about this concept of the resistance for those who aren't familiar. And it's basically what he's saying with this capital R resistance is this is the force. He's putting a name to the force that keeps us from doing what is most important to us for whatever reason. It's like procrastination, but it's more than that. The thing that makes you go do laundry or clean up your apartment instead of sitting down to do the thing that you love to do, that is the resistance. And while the resistance keeps you from doing that, it can also be a really valuable thing by telling you what's important to you. If there's, if I keep if I have to clean my entire house and clean out my to-do list before I sit down to write, for whatever reason, writing is probably pretty important to me. That's what the resistance is telling me. And so I think to go back to what we were talking about a little bit earlier, for someone who's thinking about starting a journey of building a more fulfilling life through more fulfilling days, I would say the hardest thing to do is to start. And what makes it that much more difficult is thinking that the only way we'll be successful in this journey is reaching perfection tomorrow or perfection a year from now, or really perfection at any point, because then it seems like the most impossible, exhausting, and daunting journey imaginable. But when you think about it instead, like, I'm just going to do a little bit today, I'm going to meditate for two minutes tomorrow morning, like everybody's got two minutes on the bus to work, or in the bathroom in between meetings, there's (laughs) any number of ways to find that time, that's manageable. And Mm -hmm. once you start to see a little bit of progress and know that this thing is not this looming impossible achievement that you need to do yesterday, but something that you'll slowly build towards over the course of your life. I think any sort of journey becomes a lot more clear. You can see where you're going. And I I think this ties into a bit of what you were saying about vision and Mm -hmm. the vision starts to become more realistic. Once you see that the way you get there is not by reinventing yourself tonight, by opening up a million tabs and reading a ton of blogs, the way you reinvent yourself is over time. And slowly that vision becomes a lot more clear. And 
there's something I talk about in the book, this idea of seeing your life as a trajectory rather than a set fixed plan. Okay. Yeah. And, and I think it's a bit of a paradox because you want to have a vision for where you want to go. I think that's important for all the reasons you mentioned. Absolutely. At the same time, I think it's easy as I did with my Colorado political obsession to get really wedded to the idea of that one fixed vision yeah. and then miss all the other life that's happening and all the op- other opportunities that are might show up around you um, while you're obsessively following that one fixed plan. So that's why I think about following a vision as a trajectory because it recognizes that you might change, that your circumstances might change, the world might change around you. You can still keep striving and keep becoming a better person and keep honing your craft, whatever that craft may be. Who knows who you'll meet? Who knows what opportunity will present itself? Who knows what mistakes you might make? And who knows what might happen in your life? All these things outside of your control. If we're wedded to a very fixed plan, then that's we're convincing ourselves that nothing bad will happen, that everyone we love will be healthy and our health will be sustained. And for as long as it takes to achieve that plan, and that's just, unfortunately, that's just not how life works. And what better thing than a pandemic to yeah. remind us that's I, out of our control. I think part of what all of this to me is like training for is, is being able to better deal with those curveballs life throws at us. Mm-hmm. Part of the reason to just go about thinking about who you are or what you are and how you internalize your own beliefs and what you see yourself either being or becoming allows you to look at the world and be like, oh, there's a pandemic happening. And you can scan your mental awareness and be like, am I stressed out today? Or what's bothering me? And then if you've done enough of the work, you can realize, okay, I might be anxious, but is that really necessary right now? I'm pretty safe. I have a job. I've got a house and all these things to put yourself at ease. And then allows you to then look at those around you that may not be handling this stuff as well as you are. And it's not about going after that person. Maybe you should go do this and start telling them about mindfulness and stuff like that. Cause it's not going to work. <laughs> right. But what you can do is be supportive and compassionate and empathetic and be like, Hey, I was feeling that too. And here's why, but here's how I help myself work through that. And you're able to extend the hand to other people instead of being judgmental about, Oh my God, they're not handling this like they should in quotes. And I just think it's so important. And it's what you're saying with before was like just craft because we're, we're right about an hour here and I we definitely have more than enough to continue talking for the foreseeable future but I'd, I'd just like to elaborate on craft because you've mentioned it a couple times in this conversation and it's something I really resonate with is just when you do something or, or are striving to master a thing it becomes a craft and most of us think of like the arts when you think of craft but I think sports can be a craft I think anything you do when done with mastery is a craft and that to strive for that is, is one of the things that I think leads to fulfillment. So I'd love for you to just yeah. elaborate on your idea of craft and what that means for fulfilling. Yeah. It. And I think that's a, a fitting place to wrap up what will hopefully be just round one mm-hmm. of uh, this conversation. And let's put a pin in something you were mentioning at the end there about showing up for other people yes. and how the tools and in, in this book and just any sort of self-improvement habit I think is it's called self-improvement but it's I think in a lot of ways you're improving yourself for your own well-being yes but you're also improving yourself to be able to be a better friend and better partner better spouse better 
son or daughter, better husband, human, wife, period. better human being. Exactly. <laughs> and I think if there's anything that the last few months have reminded us, it's that there is a lot of work to do as communities, as society, and what we need are not necessarily people working 80 hour weeks to change the world. Although yeah. that's, well, that's not bad in and of itself, but the way that's not the way change happens. It doesn't happen by individuals exhausting themselves in Microsoft outlook change happens through collective movements and the yeah. way that we have the strength to participate in these movements for those of us who are lucky enough or privileged enough not to have the movement thrust upon us yeah. and not have a choice is we make ourselves self-aware. We help ourselves find time for the things that matter to us so we can be there for people who need us. So let's get into that, I think, in our next conversation, because yeah. there's a lot there. And I think it's particularly relevant for the moment that we're living through. Maybe it'll be book two, being a better human. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The, the one size fits all strategy to happiness and human success. Yeah. Question of craft. Yeah, absolutely. This is something that I have tried to internalize this idea of seeing life as a craft. That's why it's the subtitle of the book, Embracing the Craft of Life One Day at a Time. And I have gotten this from, a, this is an idea that was clarified for me through a lot of reading that I've done. So this is not something I take credit for. Authors like Cal Newport, the author of Deep Work and quite a few other books is one of many writers. And I'm sure I'm, I'm going to forget others who have really talked about the notion that you mentioned of mastery and mm -hmm. of seeing the work that Robert we do. Robert Greene wrote the book yeah. Mastery, I believe, right? Yeah, there you go. And I even cite a little example from a book about Lego, the company that we all, you know, or many of us grew up playing with and, yeah. <laughs> and what makes Legos in many for the company is successful for quite a few reasons. But one of them is this fundamental idea of mastery that for whatever reason, human beings and kids in this case, but human beings in general are wired to find fulfillment through mastering a craft. And for me, the way my craft is writing and the way that I shifted from seeing writing as just a burden, something that I had to check off the to-do list on any given day to seeing it as something to seek out that brings value in and of itself was working as a speechwriter. And it wasn't something that I necessarily sought out because I thought it would be the perfect job for me. It was something that it was the right fit for my career at the right time. And I was very lucky to find myself working for a senator and working with colleagues who gave me the opportunity to write basically day in and day out. Wow. And to be successful in that job, I couldn't just see speech or write column or write talking points as the task. And then I would check that task off and go on with the rest of my day. That was the job. And so if I wanted to enjoy the job and be successful in the job, writing had to be something that I could do day in and day out. And that switch from just a burden or an obligation that I need to get to the other side of to something that I can really invest time in learning and growing and getting better at through trial and error and by spending lots and lots of hours doing it, that is an unbelievable opportunity for me to get to see what actually honing a craft is. And I don't think... I would see writing that way had I not had that opportunity. And I don't think I would see other parts of my life the same way now had I not first discovered the fulfillment and the reward that comes with honing a craft, even if nobody else sees what you do. Yeah. And from there, I worked backwards and seeing what are the other parts of my life that 
give me the same sense of fulfillment and accomplishment and sustainable accomplishment, not yeah. fleeting promotion or pay raise accomplishment, but sustainable accomplishment that writing does. And it's the things that we've been talking about. It's being present with my partner and spending time when we're both focused on each other and not on our phones. Mm-hmm. It's carving out a moment of stillness in the middle of a crazy day to just brain dump some idea that's been, or some anxiety that's been bumping around in my brain. These are the things that I can hone and get better at a meditation practice, like building space between me and the world. All of these things give me when done over time, like we talked about, these are not things that, you, you know, craft, you don't hone overnight. This is a, a lifelong journey. Yeah. All of these things when done over time, give me the same sense of reward and contentment and fulfillment as writing. And so for me, that is what a craft is. It's something that you practice day in and day out and you get better at and you give yourself the benefit of the doubt and cut yourself some slack when you inevitably screw up. And when you're not a perfect craftsman or craftswoman or craftsperson tomorrow, even though you just started it today. And the very idea of what a fulfilling life means, I think is something we can't possibly ever figure out because we're always trying to learn a little bit more every single day. But I think that is the idea of life as a craft in and of itself, which is accepting that we're not going to get it right all the time. We're not going to know all the answers and just continuing to put one foot in front of the other day in and day out in spite of that. Yeah. I think that's a perfect place to end this one. It, it really strikes on so many levels for me because it's, I think it's part of the symptom of the modern world where everything has to be perfect the first time. It's got to be the perfect launch or the perfect whatever. And when in reality, all of these books and these ideas really just circle back onto it's the, it's about the journey, not the destination. That's what we're getting at. And it's almost like the, you can't describe what a fulfilling life is because the philosophers will argue about what is the purpose of life anyways. So, (laughs) so you can't even really answer that question without asking, answering the root question, which so it's up to each one of us to figure out what's fulfilling. And I think that's where craft really makes that fulfillment piece like that dotted line maybe there. And for each one of us it's different. And like, like we're saying is through the expression of craft, we, are able to connect with those around us. And we'll definitely have to get into that to round two with compassion, empathy, and connection, because those are really important and integral to me as well with what I do here. Just being like able to embrace all facets of the human experience would be Mm -hmm. the most scientific way of saying it. And it's just a journey, man. (laughs) I just really, I'm blown away because it's just such a fun conversation to have. And it, and with everything that's been upheaval and things like that over the last probably three to four months and not to say the least the last few weeks have been very draining not especially for someone like me who thinks about the society on so many different levels and scales it's hard not to get dragged into the mud sometimes (laughs) yeah yeah that's so true and this is one of the things i really appreciate about the work that you do and about your podcast which is that you this idea of craft and journey comes through in the conversations that you have and there's a lot of different elements to it And there's a lot of different ways that it's not just about self-improvement, but it's about improving the world more broadly at the risk of using the same change the world grandiose phrase that I've just been knocking for the last 45 (laughs) minutes. But there is, there's a lot to this and it's the worlds of say self-improvement and then societal improvement for lack of a better phrase are 
too often separated. And I think one of the things that you do is show that these worlds are very much one and the same. And I think that'll be something among quite a few other topics I think that we have on the list to uh, dive into during the round two of this conversation. Yeah. Thank you for having me on, Eric. This has been really fun. Yeah, this I've really enjoyed this. And thank you for saying that. It's, it's not every day I get to hear feedback or just what other people think. So I really appreciate that. And as one final thing, where can people connect with you on the socials? Yes, the most important question. <laughs> actually the most important question, but certainly the one I always forget to uh, answer, even if it's not asked. So the book is Reframe the Day, Embracing the Craft of Life One Day at a Time. Search for it on whatever your preferred bookseller is. Support independent bookstores if you can. Just search for Reframe the Day. You can learn more about me at my website, adaml.blog, Adam. A-D-A-M-L dot B-L-O-G. You can find my entire list of writing that I've done in the past about life and work and fulfillment, but also a lot of the commentary I've written about politics. You can find out more about the book at my website. Again, that's adaml.blog. I would direct you to social media, but I've recently reimposed a social media hiatus on myself uh, that I had written about in the book and then breached thinking that I needed to be on social media to promote the book. And now I'm back off social media and <laughs> promising myself I won't do that again. So just go to my website, adaml.blog, sign up for my newsletter, reframe your inbox. And I think one important thing to note about the book is that I am donating all author profits from sales of the book to COVID-19 response efforts of the global organization direct relief sales of this book are not going to single-handedly keep direct relief afloat but if doing you can do a little bit of good by buying this book in addition to helping yourself and maybe people around you and also giving a little bit of money to direct relief hopefully that's a great incentive to go to adamel.blog and get yourself a copy of reframe the day cool that's awesome i that's a cool way of doing it and yeah i totally feel the the limiting social media for sure <laughs> yeah maybe we'll add that to the list of topics for next time yeah, as well definitely so cool and we'll have all the links in the show notes of this episode on on my website too once this goes live so it'll be a, a nice home for all the links so people can find it it's super easy so amazing no problem there thanks again adam this is awesome thanks for having me eric looking forward to round two yeah definitely I want to take a quick second and talk about how you can support our show. I believe this is the most honest way that I can connect with you, the listener, and put it in front of everyone. You can support our show for as little as 99 cents a month. We release four podcasts a month, all at an average length of about an hour. That means you are supporting us at just 25 cents an hour. That's, just, that's cheaper than the dollar menu. I think it's safe to say that we provide more value than that. And if you learn anything from our content, please consider becoming a supporter today with the link in the description of any episode or on the website at feedingcuriosity.net. And with that, thanks for listening and please enjoy the show. Thank you all for listening to this episode of Feeding Curiosity. I hope you all learned something or at least got you thinking. If you want to dive in deeper, please head over to feedingcuriosity.net to find related links or just more podcasts and blogs that we've posted there. On top of this, please consider subscribing to our newsletter to stay up to date on the latest happenings on the website. Thank you all for joining me one more time and we'll catch you all in the next episode.